Let's do our Bible study this evening. Headed over, headed towards Job. Job chapter 38. Let's pick up where we left off this morning. Job chapter 38. If you need sermon notes and didn't get in when you walked in, the usher's going to move through the auditorium. They'll hand that to you. Uh, so, fellas, why don't you come? Anybody need the sermon notes? Raise your hand. They'll hand it to you. And let's plow into Job chapter 38. Let's continue. Let's do a tour of the zoo this evening. Uh, the other day I asked my grandkids, I said, what was your most favorite time in school so far? And the third grader responded, he says, oh, I especially like kindergarten and first grade when we had show and tell time. Okay, do you remember those times where you could come and bring something that was special? Actually, Job chapter 38, 39, 40, 41 is all about God doing a show and tell time. God is telling all about his things, what he's done, what's in his possession, what's in his hands. As we were saying this morning, if you weren't here, let me just repeat. In Job chapter 38, starting with verses 1 and 2, all of a sudden the Lord comes to Job, and he's gonna, this is the first conversation that he's going to have with Job face to face, but he's speaking out of a tornado, out of a whirlwind wind. And he's going to go in the first sermon is going to be from 38 all the way up to the beginning of chapter 40. Then to the rest of chapter 40 all the way to chapter the end of chapter 41 is his second speech that he makes to Job. And so we're in that first speech where God gives him a tour of the universe. Show and tell time. Let me show you what I've done with snow, what I've done with creation, what I've done with the stars, what I've done with uh, the different, the earth and the sunrise and the sunset. And he lists a whole bunch of things. And so if you want to study Job chapter 38, one way you could study it is you could study from the scientific point of view. There is a lot of information in Job chapter 38 that would parallel a lot of the different sciences. There was a video that Ron Newhart sent to me that is from Prager University. It's from February 2015. The title of the video is, Does Science Argue For or Against God? And the uh, man who, is, who put this together, his name is Eric Metaxas. It's, it's spelled like me taxes. And so if you want to reference this and look it up or to be able to use it, it's an interesting video. It's got science in it. It lasts about five minutes. But I thought it was well worth showing you, especially a number of you who get into conversations at work and things of that sort. In 1966, Time magazine ran a cover story asking, is God dead? The cover reflected the fact that many people had accepted the cultural narrative that God is obsolete that as science progresses, there's less need for a God to explain the universe. It turns out, though, that the rumors of God's death were premature. In fact, perhaps the best arguments for his existence come from, of all places, science itself. Here's the story. The same year Time featured its now famous headline, the astronomer Carl Sagan announced that there were two necessary criteria for a planet to support life, the right kind of star, and a planet the right distance from that star. Given the roughly octillion planets in the universe, that's one followed by 24 zeros, there should have been about septillion planets, that's one followed by 21 zeros, capable of supporting life. With such spectacular odds, scientists were optimistic that the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, known by its initials SETI, an ambitious project launched in the 1960s, was sure to turn up something soon. With a vast radio telescopic network, scientists listened for signals that resembled coded intelligence. But as the years passed, the silence from the universe was deafening. As of 2014, researchers have discovered precisely bubkis, not a zilch, which is to say zero followed 
by an infinite number of zeros. <laughs> what happened? As our knowledge of the universe increased, it became clear that there were, in fact, far more factors necessary for life, let alone intelligent life, than Sagan supposed. His two parameters grew to 10, then 20, and then 50, which meant that the number of potentially life-supporting planets decreased accordingly. The number dropped to a few thousand planets and kept on plummeting. Even SETI proponents acknowledged the problem. Peter Schenkel wrote in a 2006 piece for Skeptical Inquirer, a magazine that strongly affirms atheism, in light of new findings and insights, we should quietly admit that the early estimates may no longer be tenable. Today, there are more than 200 known parameters necessary for a planet to support life, every single one of which must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. For example, without a massive gravity-rich planet like Jupiter nearby to draw away asteroids, Earth would be more like an interstellar dartboard than the verdant orb that it is. Simply put, the odds against life in the universe are astonishing. Yet, here we are, not only existing, but talking about existing. What can account for it? Can every one of those many parameters have been perfectly met by accident? At what point is it fair to admit that it is science itself that suggests that we cannot be the result of random forces? Doesn't assuming that an intelligence created these perfect conditions in fact require far less faith than believing that a life-sustaining Earth just happened to beat the inconceivable odds? Hmm. But wait, there's more. The fine-tuning necessary for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, astrophysicists now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, were determined less than one millionth of a second after the Big Bang. Alter any one of these four values ever so slightly, and the universe as we know it could not exist. For instance, if the ratio between the strong nuclear force and the electromagnetic force had been off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest inconceivable fraction, then no stars could have formed at all. Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions, and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. It would be like tossing a coin and having it come up heads ten quintillion times in a row. I don't think so. Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said that his atheism was greatly shaken by these developments. One of the world's most renowned theoretical physicists, Paul Davies, has said that the appearance of design is overwhelming. Even the late Christopher Hitchens, one of atheism's most aggressive proponents, conceded that without question the fine-tuning argument was the most powerful argument of the other side. Oxford University professor of mathematics, Dr. John Lennox, has said, the more we get to know about our universe, the more the hypothesis that there is a creator gains in credibility as the best explanation of why we are here. The greatest miracle of all time is the universe. It is the miracle of all miracles, one that inescapably points to something or someone beyond itself. I'm Eric Metaxas for Prager University. 
Interesting, isn't it? Now, where we go with that is we say, okay, then who is this designer? You know, who designed it? Well, let's talk a little bit about this designer revealing himself. He talks in Job. He continues and he says, Job, here's what I've done. Here's the things that I've done. At the end of the conversation, we finish up this morning, Job is going to respond to God and just say, I'm a lightweight. I, I, I don't know what I can say anymore. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will proceed no further. Job is just astounded by God's greatness after the show and tell. And so what happens there is Job says, like we said this morning, Job says, I am small, I'm simple, I'm going to be silent, and I'm going to be a servant. What I want to do is I want to continue on in the sermon that God is giving, and it picks up in chapter 38, verse 34, and it's before Job speaks. But this whole section, to me, strikes of an additional one of those statements, and it's basically what Job kind of concludes. I am significant. I am significant. When it's all said and done, I am humbled before you because of how small I am and how much I need to learn. I, I am humbled in saying I'm going to be silent and I'm going to serve you. But I am also humbled that you, in all your majesty and greatness and power and abilities, would even think about me. In fact, Job is sitting there and he's having a conversation with God Almighty. That humbled him. That humbled him. But then what happens is in that second half of the, of the message, God is going to take us on a tour of the zoo. And the overriding predominant thought that comes through on this whole animal kingdom is that if God cares for them, God cares for you, who is a higher creation, a part of God's creation. Let's begin with, this, with the tour, okay? What he does is in this next section of the sermon, he's going to talk about ten different animals. He's going to talk about six land animals. He's going to talk about four different types of birds. He's going to show that there's variety. There's great variety in the creation that he has made. That these animals, he's going to talk about their personalities, he's going to talk about their abilities, their skill sets, and he's going to really, really highlight their differences, their strengths and personalities. He's going to point that they have instinctive skills, that they just, they automatically do certain things or have certain abilities that we say it's insta, that people will say it's just instinctively evolved. We would say it's put into the DNA, it's part of the creation. That God made them this way. Both here, when we talk about it, the variety and both of the instinctive skills that the animals have, it shows God's creativity and genius. Then we're going to talk about, and a lot of these animals that we're going to be seeing, they're untamable. They're wild creatures. They're, they're non-domesticated. Yeah, they can be put in a zoo, and yes, if you force them, you might have the rare occasions. But as a whole, these are wild animals. And he's going to say that these wild animals, wild to Job, they're not wild to me. That I can control, that I am going to take and, and monitor them. So all of it points to God's care. So as we go, just watch this. See how it unfolds. Let's jump into chapter 38, down to verse 39. The questions keep on coming, those 77 questions. Here all of a sudden, it, the question is in verse chapter 38, verse 39. Will you hunt the prey for the lion, or fill the appetite of the young lions, when they couch in their dens and abide in the covert to lie in wait? So basically he's going to be saying, this king of the beasts, which we all understand, which can be several hundred pounds, this beast that's about four foot at the shoulders, this beast that is non-domesticated, this beast that runs in groups, prides, or coalitions, whether it be male or female with young. Um, and so he's going to ask Job these questions. Do you feed any of the lions? He's not talking about, do you become lion bait? 
Okay. Do you become lion food? He's talking about, do you go up to their caves and do you feed the young ones? And all of us would say, are you nuts? Okay. None of us would do that. And God's going to basically going to be, the implication is, I do. I can handle these animals. Then he's going to go to another animal. He's going to talk about the ravens when he says here in, in the next verse, verse 41, who provides for the raven his food when his young ones cry unto God, they wander for lack of meat. Let me ask you a question, okay? That's, when you think, what are ravens like? Those big blackbirds, what are they like to you? Noisy? Is that a good definition? Okay, anything else? What? They're ugly? Okay. They, they don't have, I mean, you know, what do they eat? What do you see them normally eating? <laughs> yeah, the stuff that nobody should be eating. Okay. So we have these ravens. They're loud. They're obnoxious. They're dirty. Okay. And if you hear them outside your house, what do you want to do? Yeah, yeah. You want to go out there and say, isn't this a beautiful sound, this morning bird? Okay. You want to take the pellet gun? No, you don't. Uh, <laughs> but we want to get rid of them. Here in this passage, he says, Job, do you bother to feed them? And the answer for most of us would be, no. Okay. Do you listen to them? And the answer for most of them is, I don't want to. But the implication is, God is basically saying, I do. They're part of my creation. I care for them. He goes on, he talks about another animal. He talks in chapter 39, the sermon. Knowest thou the time when the wild goats of the rock bring forth? Or canst thou mark when the hinds do cap? He's going to be talking about the birthing of these mountain goats. And there's a reason why he keeps on bringing it up. Okay? Can you number the months that they fulfilled their gestation period? Or knowest thou the time that when they bring forth, when they birth their, their young? They bow themselves. They bring forth their young ones. They cast out their sorrows. Their young ones are in good liking. They grow up with corn. They go forth. They return not unto them. So what he's talking about probably is the ibex that would be in that Middle Eastern area. That would be a very common mountain goat in that region. And um, this, this animal was not well known. In fact, in recent history, there was a time period that, that, that modern, modern folk didn't even know how long their gestation period was. It was only in recent times that it's found out because they're such a shy animal. They're such a secret type of an animal. And so the point is, God is saying, do you know the ibex well? Do you know much about them other than you might get a fleeting moment to see them? But as a whole, you don't know about them. Do you have any idea when it comes to their birthing, their, their time? Do you go up there as a vet and you help them to birth their young ones. And the answer Job would be saying is, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. And the implication is, but God knows how many there are. God knows how long it takes to reproduce one. God knows where they're at. This creature that you only get a fleeting sight of. Then he continues on with his zoo. He talks about the wild donkeys, which there were herds of wild donkeys in the Middle East at this time. And so in verse 39, chapter 39, verse 5, Who hath sent out the wild ass free? Who hath loosed the bands of the wild ass? Whose house I have made the wilderness and the barren land his dwellings? He scorns the multitude of the city, neither regards he the crying of the drivers. The range of the mountains is his pasture. He searches after every green thing. And so he's talking about these animals, and he's saying, Job, did you give them their freedom? Job, were you the one who uh, you have their attention? So 
as a driver, as an AO, if you were to, if you were to harness them, do they, do they come running to you? to do your bidding? The answer is no. They don't run to people. They do what? They flee from the communities, from the cities. They stay in the wilderness. And he asks the question, who feeds them? Who takes care of them? Job, you don't. Job's answer is basically going to be, no, no, nope, I don't. I don't. They're wild. I don't, I don't control them. They're wild. They don't listen to me. They're wild. I don't feed them. The implication is, God does. God takes care of them. God knows all about him. Then he continues in this, in this section, and um, this is worthwhile just bringing up. Somebody asked me this morning, they said, somebody who was visiting, they said, I saw that you mentioned unicorns in your, in your slide this morning. Are you saying there is such a critter as a unicorn? Okay. Um, that's going to be part of this discussion. The word that he uses in here is ra'am. Okay. Sometimes in, bibli- in extra-biblical literature, in fact, in some in biblical literature, depends on some of the different uh, variations that you have in translations. The same word is oxen. The same word is unicorn. King James favors the unicorn translation. And then there are a variety of that come out. Okay, what is it? Uh, it's interesting if you look up some of these other references that it talks at other places in the Bible. It talks about the horns, plural, of the unicorn. Well, horns plural automatically takes away unicorn, okay? So what type of animal is it? Okay, so we don't know from biblical writings, but are there any mentions of the ra'am in other literature from the ancient period? There is a possibility. We, we really don't know. What we do know from this text is it's an animal that's compared to the oxen. An animal compared to that which would pull the plow. Well, watch what he says about this animal, whatever animal it is. Verse, down to verse 9. Will the unicorn be willing to serve you or abide by, the, by your crib, your barn, your, your, uh, the place where you have your oxen? Can you bind the unicorn with his band in the furrow or will you, he harrow the valleys after you? Will you trust him because his, great, his strength is so great? Or wilt thou leave your labor to him? Will you believe him that he will bring home your seed and gather it into thy barn? Will you use him in your field? Will you trust him to, to work in the, in the, in the, uh, with the plow that he will follow you and he will do your direction? That you can put him in the barn and he's a safe creature, a domesticated animal. Every implication of what he's saying is it's a non-domesticated type of a beast. That this is a huge beast. It's wild. It has horns. That it's compared to other farm animals that are used to do farm work. So the suggestion by a multitude number of different Bible scholars is it's something that was oxish-like, but something bigger, something that couldn't be controlled, that it couldn't be, it was, its nature was it's a wild beast. But it's huge, it's strong, but it, it compares itself to something that you would use in your barn. And so as you start reading and studying a little bit more about it, there's an animal that comes up from extra-biblical literature that is called an arach. The arach is talked about in a lot of ancient writings, about a wild beast that was oxish-like. Um, the last one that was, that was sighted of the last herds was in 1627 in Europe that there was these beasts that were wrong, but now they're trying to introduce a similar strain and create this new type of ox that is huge. And if you look at the picture, 
It's big. It's huge. Okay? It talks in ancient literature, extra-biblical literature, about these being killed in vast hunts by nobility, these wild animals. It would be like the American bison. At one time, it roamed that region of the world, but all of a sudden, you know, it was, it was hunted down. If this is the creature, then this is what happened to the creature, that it got hunted down in a period of time. And so we have all these different references. What type of animal it exactly is, we don't know what Ra'am is interpreted to be. Okay, there's, like I said, different postulations. An ox, you know, a unicorn, different things of that sort. But the point that he says, are you able to harness this beast? That's the point of the discussion. The point isn't what is the animal in particular. The point is this animal is a wild animal. It looks like, it acts like, it might be like a cousin to some of the animals you domesticate. But do you get this animal to do your plowing? And Job's answer is nope, 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 nope. This beast is untamable. This beast is unusable on the farm. This beast is dangerous. The implication is, though, I control it. I can manage this beast. Then he continues on and he talks about one of the strange animals. The animal that we're familiar with, the ostrich. We jump down to chapter 39, verse 13. Gavest thou the goodly wings unto the peacocks, her wings and feathers unto the ostrich, which leaves her eggs in the earth and warms them in the dust, and forgets that the foot, her foot, may crush them, or that the wild beast may break them. She is hardened against her young ones, as though they were not hers. Her labor is in vain without fear, because God hath deprived her of wisdom. Neither has he imparted to her understanding. What time she lifted up herself on high, she scorns the horse and his rider. So he describes this animal. And we know about it. We know that it can wave, it can wave a few hundred pounds. It's large. We all don't know what they are like. It's, we all understand it's the largest of all the birds, but it can't fly. We know that it's strange compared to all the other birds. It has eyelashes. No other birds do. That it has the two toes where every other bird has the three. We understand that it's unique. It has been called the dumbest of birds for generations after generations. And Job implies, by God's statements here, God implies that this bird is not have a whole lot of natural wisdom. And he talks about how it's a very poor mother. And this was common understanding in ancient writings that a lot of people describing the ostrich will describe it as a very poor mother. Uh, in fact, the males dig the nest in the sand and then the females lay the eggs. And taking care of the eggs, the females aren't real good at. It's not uncommon for one of the eggs to be kicked out of the nest, the hole that was dug, and the eggs placed in it, and she not recovering the egg. And just letting the egg become bait for other animals. Uh, we, we know that when she lays the eggs in this hole in the ground, that frequently the female ostrich, she walks away. And if there's any threat when predators come, she runs away from the eggs. And then what she does is she runs in large circles and just keeps on going in circles. And ancient peoples looked and said, that's a pretty dumb animal. You know, that's not fighting for its young, so she's called to be a, a, poor, a poor mother. And so all these flaws that Job and the others would say, yeah, she's not a smart animal. Yeah, she's not a good mother. That would be their reasoning. That was the common sense. But God says, I have given her some skills. Though she's different, though she's strange, I have given her the ability that she is faster than a horse. That's what he mentions in that last verse. 
where he talks about how this, this ostrich can outrun horses, which it can. Okay, it can hit 40 miles an hour. When it starts taking a, you know, a, a jump as it's going, it can go 15 feet. That's pretty, pretty good distance for this bird. And so this bird has this ability to, this skill set, though it's strange, you know, we might look at it and say, God, what were you thinking when you made the ostrich? And by the way, this is the only time in this whole section that God doesn't ask questions. He makes statements. And he's saying, this is what this animal is like, a strange animal. And the implication is that you might think, you know, what kind of animal? You made this animal kind of a dumb animal, a strange-looking animal. But God would say, hey, wait a minute, I made it unique. And not only unique, I gave it unique skill sets that make it kind of majestic in a way that it has greater abilities and powers than some of the other animals around it. Job, you might be wondering what I'm doing. You might look at the ostrich and say, what did you do, God? And the answer is, I know what I'm doing when I create. I made a creature that has some oddities, but I also gave it some skill sets. It's not the same as all the other animals in that grouping of that genre, but it still has some abilities. Isn't that human-like? Isn't there variety within the human genre? And yet, are there different skill sets that are given? The answer is yes. So he goes on, he talks about this whole idea that God makes makes something unusual, but God is not making a mistake. He continues on the tour, and he talks about another animal. Down in chapter 39, jump down to verse 19. He now talks about a horse, but not just any horse. He's talking about the war horse. And he describes that this animal has a personality that is really, really relevant to its tasks and its ability. Hast thou given the horse its strength? And the answer is, Job, did you give the horse its strength? The answer? No. Nope. Nope. Not me. Have you clothed his neck with thunder? Nope. Nope. Can you make him afraid as a grasshopper? Nope. Nope. Not a war horse. He goes on, the glory of his nostrils is terrible. He paws in the valley, rejoices in his strength. He goes on to meet the armed men. He mocks at fears and is not frightened or afraid. Neither turns he back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him and the glittering spear and the shield. He swallows the ground with fierceness and rage, neither believing that it is the sound of the trumpet. He saith unto the trumpets, ha ha, and smells the battle afar off, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. And this animal, this war horse, he's saying, Job, can you make it afraid? This animal has a personality that it's fearless. That when there's conflict, it's, this magnificent animal, it runs into the battle. It's an animal that will, you know, when the, when the stuff and the, the military weapons are hitting on its side as it's galloping, it's almost like saying to that horse, Sigum. And he's going even faster. Job, did you give the horse this type of strength? No. Job, did you give that horse that type of personality? No, I did. I made him to be of this type of skill set. I'm the one who moved him that way. And then he talks about some of the stunning animals. He goes back to the bird kingdom. And he talks about the hawk and the eagle. In this last section, he says, Does the hawk fly by your wisdom, Job? Does he stretch out his wings towards the south? Does the eagle mount up at your command? And make her nest a high in the rocks, on high. She dwells and abides in the rocks, upon the crag of the rock, and the strong place. 
from whence she seeks her prey, and her eyes behold afar off. Her young ones also suck up the blood of the, of the animals that are brought back, and where the, the slain are, there she is. They'll show up as carnivores do and after a battle. So Job, did you give the birds this ability to fly on high? And we all know that, no, no way, men at this time weren't flying themselves. And so Job, you didn't give that. Did you give them the eyes to see so far off? And then when we, we learn from those who study these birds that at 600 feet high, they can see a fish in a, a lake when we're talking miles away. You and I have trouble reading our books in front of us, our computers. Some of you, we put the TV in the back so they help the choir to be able to follow along better the music instead of turning sideways. And I'm standing here right now looking at the TV and I'm struggling to see it at 70 feet from the pulpit. And these birds, they can see miles away. Is that because of us? And the answer is, no. No. Who made these animals? Who guided these animals to put their, their nests high in the rocks? Who, who put them to a place where their young are protected? It, it, you say, well, evolution did it. No, no. God made these birds with these instinctive abilities and skill sets. And Job, if you had to answer me, are you the one who's in control of these birds? Are you the one that's taking care of them? And Job would say, no, no, no. Did you make this creation with all this variety? No, no, no. Do you know how to take care of them in the hard times? Do you know how to put, to put the rain out in the desert to provide for those wild animals? No, no, I, I, not me. And so all through this, at the end of the tour is when God says, now Job, we've gone through the solar system and we've done a tour of the zoo. And all I want you to know is, now you have an opportunity to tell me what you think about yourself. And he says, I'm small. I'm simple. Uh, I, I've learned that I need to be silent. I learned that I need to just be a servant. But God, you've also said to me by this tour that I am really significant to you. And for that, I'm very grateful. I am very thankful. And God, who is talking to him out of this tornado, has just shown his cleverness to be able to create variety. To be able to, in the animal kingdom, the, the kingdom that's beyond the, beyond the rocks and the ice and the precipitation, that he's given the living creatures personality. He's given the living creatures different skill sets. And he's done that with the lesser part of creation, the animal kingdom, and he's also done it with the higher part of creation, the human kingdom. He's given variety. He's given those who, who can, uh, can be considered ignorant. He's given them some clear, clear abilities. And he, God cares for those animals. He carefully cares for these animals. Um, join me in Matthew chapter 6. Jump over there for a second. This is Jesus speaking. In fact, Matthew 6, you may want to write this in Job chapter 40 next to it. Matthew 6 and then as well in Luke chapter 12. In Matthew 6 and Luke chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 6, he's talking and he's going to make this comment. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And it fits so well with what he's just done with this tour. He's going to be talking, he says um, uh, to the audience, Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I say unto you, take no thought about your life, which you shall eat or drink, nor yet for your body what you will put on. Is not life more than meat and the body more than raiment? And then he goes to the, to the animal kingdom. 
Behold the fowls of the air. They don't sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet, what does he say? Your heavenly Father feeds them. Okay, the next line is critical. Are you not much better than they? And by the way, the answer to this is what? Are you much better than the animals? Yes, yes you are. Look at how he repeats it in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, he makes the statement in Luke chapter 12 and he adds you know, the same thing but expands. We're looking at verse 6. Are not five sparrows sold for two farthings and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not therefore because you are of more value than many sparrows. Interesting what he says here. What he says to you and me is God takes a personal active role in caring for the smallest of creatures. Think this through. God takes a personal active role in caring for the smallest of creatures. Sparrows, on the scale of, of creation, they're, they're pretty much down here in the living creatures because there's many of them not real, real smart And he's saying, aren't you much more important than them? But I I care for them. I care for all the living creatures, which he's already despised, even those that are despised or not. And people are of greater value than the beasts. This is a contrary truth to what modern society wants you to believe. Modern society wants you to believe that animals and people are on the same plane. Jesus Christ said that's not true. That's not true. Men are higher, mankind are higher than the animal kingdom. It's because we did not come from animals. We are created in the image of God. Animals were not. And so on this this whole scale of creation, God says, you are more important to me. You are of a higher concern to me than the animals. But I care for the animals. I care for every one of the animals. I know and see even if one of the sparrows falls to the ground dead. I'm aware of it. And if you are of greater value to me than a sparrow, then surely, if I care for them, then surely I care for you. I am really watching you. And Job, you think that I've forgotten you in the middle of all these trials. You think that I've, I've deserted you. I have not run away. I have seen, I have known what's taking place. And if I, in that tour of the zoo and then the comments that Jesus made, if God cares for the lesser creatures, then certainly he cares for you and me. We have a significance, not because of who we are, but because of who God is. God is committed to our care. He equips the creatures. We've even seen in this tour that certain animals were given certain skill sets to be able to do what they need to do. When they pitch high in the rocks, they need to have a better eyesight. When they are those that, that are, you know, uh, um, don't seem to have much skill, I give them the ability to outrun horses. I've equipped them for what they need to be and where they need to be. If you start going through scriptures, you're going to see God equipped to you. God gave to you, even if we talk about something so simple, God gave you his word. He equips you uh, and makes you able to do any and all good works. That's why scripture is given. 
to equip us so that we can be thoroughly or truly furnished unto all good works. He's equipped us to be able to handle the spiritual battles. He talks about that in Ephesians 6, where he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil and that you may be able to withstand, he says, in the evil day and having done all to stand. So God's equipped us. God's equipped us that when he asked the question, okay, what about living godly lives? Look what he says in Peter. According as his divine power is given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness through knowledge of him that has called us to his glory and virtue. God has equipped us. God has given us skill sets. God has given us all that we need. And God never loses track of any of the lesser animals. He doesn't lose track of us. He keeps us in his mindset. The bottom line of this is Job has to remember in this moment, I am more significant to God than his animal kingdom. And God cares for me. And that causes Job to be humbled, not to become proud and say, Woohoo, look at me. God cares for me. God loves me. Woohoo. Job doesn't do that. Job just says, This great God, this amazing God who is so majestic, he looks at me. Can I help you to bring this to a practice this week? This week, okay, do this. Think as you're going through the week this week. When you look at different animals, when you see that animal scoot across the road in your headlights, the, uh, when the squirrels are bothering you, your, your, fur, your fur beater, your bird feeder, okay? <laughs> God doesn't have it backwards, I do. But when those things, think about how God cares for them. And pause and look at the animal creation that sings out the glory to God. You got animals near you, you're going to see them, you're going to see some of the domesticated, undomesticated. When you see those animals, when you see as you're traveling, as some of you are going on holiday travels, and you're going to see the cattle out in the field, the horses out in the field, pause and remind yourself, God made them. God made them differently, and God cares for them. God made me different, but God still cares for me. I may not look like somebody else. I may not look as handsome or I don't have the same intelligence, skill set as somebody else, but God made me unique. I'm significant to God. That should humble you. That should humble you to the point that you just say, God, you're amazing. You know me, you see what I need, and then thank God for his care for you. This is a week of thanksgiving. It should be a week of humility before the Lord. Use the object lessons that he used in Job's heart to get Job's attention and Job to think and to thank God. Let creation help you to remember how great our God is and how good he is to you and me.